Chapter One of Narrative of an Expedition to the Shores of the Arctic Sea in eighteen forty six and eighteen forty seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Schempf. Narrative of an Expedition to the Shores of the Arctic Sea in eighteen forty six and eighteen forty seven by John Ray. Chapter One Object and Plan of the Expedition Equipment at York Factory Boats Crews Articles Useful in an Arctic Voyage Breaking Up of the Ice in Hayes and Nelson Rivers Departure from York Factory Progress Retarded by the Ice First Night at Sea Reflections Rupert's Creek Unbroken Fields of Ice Broad River Description of the Coast Double Cape Churchill Open Sea to the North and Northwest Arrive at Churchill White Whales Mode of Catching Them Sir George Simpson's Instructions Stock of Provisions It is already well known to those who take an interest in Arctic discovery that the Hudson's Bay Company intended fitting out an expedition in 1840, which was to have proceeded to the northern shores of America by Back's Great Fish River, for the purpose of tracing the coast between the River Castor and Pollux of Dease and Simpson, and the Strait of Fury and Hecla, as it was then very generally supposed that Boothia was an island. The party was to have been commanded by that able and enterprising traveller, Mr. Thomas Simpson, whose indefatigable exertions, in conjunction with those of Mr. Deese, had during the three preceding years effected so much, but his untimely and melancholy fate prevented that intention from being carried into effect, and the survey of the Arctic coast was discontinued for a few years. When it was determined that the survey should be resumed, Sir George Simpson, Governor-in-Chief of the Company's Territories, informed me that a boat expedition to the Arctic Sea was again contemplated, at the same time doing me the honour of proposing that I should take command of it, a charge which I most joyfully accepted. The plan of the expedition was different from any that had hitherto been adopted, and was entirely of Sir George Simpson's forming. Its leading features were as follows. A party of thirteen persons, including two Eskimo interpreters, was to leave Churchill in two boats at the disruption of the ice, and coast along the western shore of Hudson's Bay to the northward as far as Repulse Bay, or, if thought necessary, to the Strait of Fury and Hecla. From this latter point, the shore of the Arctic Sea was to be traced to Deason Simpson's farthest discoveries eastward or, if Boothia Felix should be found to form part of the American continent, up to some place surveyed by Captain or Commander, now Sir John, and Sir James C. Ross. I started from the Sault Ste. Marie in the latter part of July, 1845, in a canoe which I took with me as far as Red River, where this frail vessel was changed for a boat, which is better adapted for traversing large sheets of water we had rather a stormy passage to Norway House, at which place five men were engaged for the expedition, and having brought two with me from the southern department, I required only three more, 
who I knew could easily be procured at York Factory. At first there was some difficulty in getting volunteers, as a report had got abroad, set on foot, I believe, by either Mackay or Sinclair, guides and steersmen with the expeditions under Sir G. Back and Dease and Simpson, that the whole party, if not starved for want of food, would run the risk of being frozen to death for want of fuel. After leaving Norway House, our progress was slow, the water being very shallow, and our boat rather a heavy drag for a single crew over the portages. Two Indians who were engaged, the one to go as far as Oxford House, and the other all the way to York Factory, stipulated that they should do no work on Sunday, to which I readily agreed, thinking that they acted conscientiously. And this I really believe to have been the case with one, but I have some doubts about the sincerity of the other, when I learned that, before leaving us, he had stolen a shirt and blanket from one of the boat's crew. We arrived at York Factory on the 8th October, during a strong gale of northeast wind with heavy rain and sleet, which had thoroughly drenched us all. In addition to which, the men were so bedaubed with mud whilst dragging the boats along shore that scarcely a feature of their faces could be distinguished. On landing, I was most kindly welcomed by Chief Factor Hargrave and the other gentlemen of the factory. There was little probability of our being able to get to Churchill by water this autumn. Nevertheless, the boats that had been built for the expedition were launched and put in order for sea. They were fine-looking and strong clinker-built craft, 22 feet long by 7 feet 6 inches broad, each capable of carrying between 50 and 60 pieces of goods of 90 pounds per piece. They were each rigged with two lug sails, to which a jib was afterwards added, under which, with a strong breeze of wind, they were found to work admirably. They were named the North Pole and the Magnet. We had a continuance of northerly winds until the ice began to form on the river, when it would have been highly imprudent to attempt going along the coast, and I did not wish to run the risk of having our boat stranded, which would have been a very likely occurrence had we put to sea. There was, therefore, nothing to be done but to haul our boats up again, nor did this cause me much disappointment, as I felt pretty certain that, in the following spring, we could advance as fast to the northward as the season of the breaking up of the ice did, and this supposition I afterwards found to be correct. My attention was now turned to the proper equipment of my party, in which I was most ably assisted by Chief Factor Hargrave and my friend Mr. W. McTavish, who was in charge of York during the temporary absence of the former gentleman, so that, with keeping a meteorological journal, in which the temperature of the air, height of the barometer, force and direction of the winds, and state of the weather were registered eight times a day, and taking observations for latitude, longitude, variation of the compass, and dip of the needle, etc., I had occupation enough on my hands. Among other articles which I thought might be useful were a small sheet-iron stove for each boat, a set of sheet-iron lamps for burning oil after the Eskimo fashion, some small kettles, commonly called conjurers, having a small basin and perforated tin stand for burning alcohol, a seine net, and four small windows, each of two double panes of glass. An oiled canvas canoe was made, 
and we also had one of Halkett's airboats, large enough to carry three persons. This last useful and light little vessel ought to form part of the equipment of every expedition. On the 30th of April, 1846, that harbinger of spring, the Canada Goose, was seen, and so early as the 5th May, the ice in Hayes River commenced breaking up, but it was more than a month after this date before the Nelson or North River opened. At length, on the 12th June, it was reported that a passage was practicable, and everything was got in readiness for making a start on the following day. The crews of the boats were divided as follows. North Pole, John Ray, John Corrigal, Orkneyman, Steersman, Richard Turner, Half-Breed, Middleman, Edward Hutchinson, Orkneyman, Middleman, Hillard Minot, Canadian, Middleman, Nibitabo, Cree Indian, Middleman and Hunter, Magnet, George Flett, Orkneyman, Steersman, John Folster, Orkneyman, Middleman, William Adamson, Zeetlander, Middleman, Jacques Saint-Germain, Canadian, Middleman, Peter Matheson, Highlander, Middleman. All these men had the same wages, namely, 40 pounds per annum, with the promise of a gratuity in the event of good conduct. The lading of each of the boats, including the men's luggage, amounted to about 70 pieces, and with this cargo they were quite deep enough in the water and very much lumbered, so much so that to allow room for pulling, a quantity of the cargo had to be displaced. On the 13th June, after bidding farewell to our kind friends at York, and receiving a salute of seven guns and three hearty cheers, we set sail with a light air of fair wind. We had not proceeded more than a mile down the river when the wind chopped round directly in our teeth and blew a gale. As I could not think of turning back, we were speedily under close-reefed sails, turning to windward. The wind and tide were going in opposite directions, and there was an ugly cross-sea running, which caused us to ship much water over both the lee and weather side. After a couple of hours of this work, we gained sufficient offing to clear the shallows, which lie for some miles out from the point of marsh, this being the name of the northeast extremity of York Island, and stood across towards the north shore of the Nelson River. The men in the magnet, having erroneously carried on too great a press of canvas, were left a mile or two astern. As we advanced, the wind gradually abated, and we soon fell in with quantities of ice driving along with the current through which we had much difficulty in finding a passage. We made the land near Sam's Creek, and it being now calm and the flood tide strongly against us, we cast anchor close to the shore between nine and ten o'clock. The night was beautiful, and as all my men had gone to sleep, nothing interrupted the stillness around but the occasional blowing of a white whale, the rather musical note of the cockawee, long-tailed duck, or the harsh scream of the great northern diver. Yet I could not close my eyes, nor was this wakefulness caused by the want of comfort in my bed, which I must own was none of the most inviting, as it consisted of a number of hard-packed bags of flour, over which a blanket was spread, so that I had to accommodate myself in the best way I could to the inequalities of the surface. To a man who had slept soundly in all sorts of places, 
on the top of a round log in the middle of a swamp as well as on the wet shingle beach such a bed was no hardship but thoughts now pressed upon me which during the bustle and occupation of preparation had no time to intrude i could not conceal from myself that many of my brother officers men of great experience in the indian country were of opinion that we ran much risk of starving little was known of the resources of that part of the country to which we were bound and all agreed that there was little chance of procuring fuel unless some oil could be obtained from the natives yet the novelty of our route and of our intended mode of operations had a strong charm for me and gave me an excitement which i could not otherwise have felt fourteenth as there were great quantities of ice along the shore to the northward of us i let the boats take the ground so that this morning they were high and dry on the mud the water being a mile or two outside of us and we as far from the high water mark as the goose hunt house a small hut where one of the company's servants and some indians go every spring and autumn to shoot and salt geese was at no great distance i visited it but found that the people had taken their departure for the factory a certain sign that the geese and ducks had gone farther north numbers of the hudsonian godwit limosa hudsonica were flying about apparently intending to breed in the neighborhood the boats floated at a quarter after ten a m and we got under way with a fine light breeze from the southeast the temperature of the air was sixty two degrees and the water forty degrees there were many pieces of ice floating about and a great quantity close packed about a half mile outside at midday we were in latitude fifty seven degrees twenty five minutes ninety three seconds north after running by massey's patent log for ten and three quarters miles north we were stopped by ice at a few minutes after one p m when we made fast to a large grounded mass which protected us from the smaller floating pieces as long as the tide was ebbing but as soon as the flood made it required all our exertions to prevent the boats being damaged we now found the great advantage of some sheep copper that had been nailed on their bows as it completely protected them from being chafed at eleven next forenoon finding our situation rather dangerous as soon as the tide flowed far enough we pushed inshore and beached the boats on a fine smooth surface of mud and gravel with the exception of a heavy shower of rain at six a m the weather continued fine all day but the sky was too cloudy to permit any observations to be made on the sixteenth we advanced only one and one half miles the temperature of the air forty two degrees and the water thirty four degrees by an azimuth of the sun the variation of the compass ten degrees fifty four minutes east was obtained as it was only at or near high water that we could make any progress we crept along shore about four miles during the morning's tide and in the evening we put into rupert's creek which afforded us good shelter and also fresh water of which we were getting rather short a fresh breeze from the east brought in much ice which completely blockaded our harbor the morning of the eighteenth was very fine but the easterly wind still continued and such was the effect produced by it that not a spot of open water was to be seen the latitude fifty seven degrees thirty two minutes eighteen seconds was observed and an observation of the sun's azimuth yesterday gave the variation of the compass nine degrees 
56 minutes east. Some partridges, Tetrao saliceti, ducks, and a flat-billed phalarope, P. fulicarius, were shot. 19th. The ice having become somewhat more open during the night, we left the creek at 4 a.m., and ran 32 and one-half miles before a fine breeze of southeast wind, through lanes of open water, as nearly as possible, in a north-northeast course. Large unbroken fields, on which numbers of seals were lying, now opposed our further progress. At high water next morning, we set forward among ice so closely packed that we were obliged to open a passage by pushing aside the smaller pieces. We thus gained between two and three miles and reached Broad River. We lay here during the remainder of the day, which was too cloudy for a meridian observation, but in the evening an amplitude of the sun gave variation 12 degrees 19 minutes east. The dip of the needle was 84 degrees 46 minutes 4 seconds. The morning's tide of the 21st advanced us nearly three miles. Our new position was found to be in latitude 58 degrees, 9 minutes, 51 seconds north. The latitude of Broad River must therefore be 58 degrees, 7 minutes north. A strong breeze of south-southwest wind had driven out some of the ice, so that, with the aid of sails and poles, we gained 12 miles more northing in the evening. From the 22nd to the 24th, we continued to creep along shore, but our progress was very slow, 19 miles being, at the highest estimate, as much as we gained. We were, however, killing ducks of various kinds and collecting eggs enough to keep us in food. A deer was also shot by Nibitabo on the 22nd, and on the 24th I procured from a high mound of ice, where it was feeding, what appeared to be a Canada nuthatch, Sitta canadensis. The skin was preserved and is with other specimens in the Honorable Hudson's Bay Company's warehouse in London. On the 25th, we lay all day in a small creek, which afforded us a safe harbor. The wind, which had yesterday blown a strong gale from the northeast, shifted round to west, which gave us some hopes of an opening to seaward. In the evening, much ice drove out with the ebb, the latitude of our position, by reduction to the meridian, was 58 degrees, 31 minutes north. 26th. This morning we were fortunate enough, after a great deal of trouble, to get the boats into comparatively open water, and as the wind was moderate from the east-southeast, we threaded our way through narrow channels and openings until opposite Cape Churchill, at 3 p.m. we doubled the cape, and to our great joy found an open sea to the north and northwest of it. The whole of the coast between Nelson River and Cape Churchill is low and flat, with not a single rock in situ. There are, however, a number of boulder stones of granite and debris of limestone to be seen. There are numerous lakelets near the shore, the banks of which form the favorite breeding places of the Canada goose, the mallard, pintail, teal, scop, and long-tailed ducks, great northern diver, footnote, the male and female of the northern diver, Columbus glacialis, resemble one another so much that it is very difficult to distinguish one from the other. The immature bird has often been described by ornithologists as the female, End footnote, and the arctic tern, 
The Phalaropus hyperboreus is also very numerous, so much so that I could have shot twenty in half an hour. The female of this phalarope and of the P. fulicarius is considerably larger and has much finer markings on its plumage than the male, the colors being much brighter. As we sailed along shore to the westward, the land gradually became more high and rocky, and there were many ridges of stones lying off several miles from the beach, among which we had some trouble in threading our way, the navigation being rendered still more difficult by a thick fog. We arrived at the mouth of Churchill River at 3 a.m. on the 27th, but as the tide was ebbing we could not stem the current, so that we did not reach the company's fort situated on the west bank of the river and about five miles up until half-past six, when I was most kindly welcomed by my friend Mr. Sinclair, chief trader, the gentleman in charge, who had not expected to see us so early. My letter of instructions had not yet arrived, so that we took advantage of the delay thus occasioned to have the boats unloaded, some slight repairs effected, and the cargoes examined and dried. I determined on leaving here some tobacco, salt, and one or two other articles that were not absolutely essential, supplying their place with pemmican and flour. Some observations for the dip of the needle gave mean dip, 84 degrees, 47 minutes, 3 seconds. The variation of the compass, 12 degrees, 29 minutes east, and the latitude of the establishment, 58 degrees, 44 minutes, 12 seconds were found, and the mean time of 70 vertical vibrations of the needle in the magnetic meridian was 148 seconds. The people of the fort were busy killing white whales, great numbers of which come up the river with the flood tide. The mode of taking them is very simple. A boat, having a harpooner both at bow and stern, sails out among the shoal, and being painted white, it does not alarm them. They approach quite close, and are thus easily struck. When harpooned, they do not run any great distance in one direction, but dart about much in the way that a trout does when hooked. On the evening of the 4th July, the anxiously expected instructions arrived from Red River via York Factory. The following is a copy of them. Red River Settlement, 15th June, 1846. Sir, you are aware that the grand object of the expedition, which has been placed under your direction, is to complete the geography of the northern shore of America by surveying the only section of the same that has not yet been traced, namely the deep bay as it is supposed to be, stretching from the western extremity of the Straits of Fury and Hecla to the eastern limit of the discoveries of Messrs. Dease and Simpson. 2. For this purpose, you will proceed from Churchill with the two boats and twelve men that have been selected for this arduous and important service, losing not a moment, at least on your outward voyage, in examining such part of the coast as has already been visited and explored. In a word, you will reach, with as little loss of time as possible, the interesting scene of your exclusive labors. 3. In prosecuting the survey in question, you will, as a matter of course, endeavor to ascertain as accurately as circumstances may permit, without occasioning any serious delay, the latitudes and longitudes of all the most remarkable points within the range of your operations. 
and also the general bearing and extent of all the intermediate portions of the coast embodying the whole at the same time in the form of a chart or rather of the draft of a chart from day to day four but in addition to this your principal and essential task you will devote as much of your attention as possible to various subordinate and incidental duties you will do your utmost consistently with the success of your main object to attend to botany and geology to zoology in all its departments to the temperature both of the air and of the water to the conditions of the atmosphere and the state of the ice to winds and currents to the soundings as well with respect to bottom as with respect to depth to the magnetic dip and the variation of the compass to the aurora borealis and the refraction of light you will also to the best of your opportunities observe the ethnographical peculiarities of the eskimo of the country and in the event of your wintering within the arctic circle you will be careful to notice any characteristic features or influences of the long night of the high latitudes in question these particulars and such others as may suggest themselves to you on the spot you will record fully and precisely in a journal to be kept as far as practicable from day to day collecting at the same time any new curious or interesting specimens in illustration of any of the foregoing heads five in order to provide against probable necessity of requiring two seasons for your operations you will take with you all the provisions that your boats can carry with such shooting hunting and fishing tackle as may enable you to husband your supplies i hardly need to mention medicines and warm clothing among the necessaries of your voyage for in full reliance on your professional zeal and ability i place the health of your people under providence entirely in your hands six in the event of wintering in the country you will cultivate the most friendly relations with the natives taking care however to guard against surprise for this purpose you will repeatedly and constantly inculcate on your men collectively and individually the absolute necessity of mildness and firmness of frankness and circumspection seven if in the event of your being unable to accomplish the whole of your task in one season you see ground for doubting whether the resources of the country are competent to maintain the whole of your people you will in that case send back a part of them to churchill with one of the boats for the remaining part of your men you cannot fail to find subsistence animated as you and they are by a determination to fulfil your mission at the cost of danger fatigue and privation wherever the natives can live i can have no fears with respect to you more particularly as you will have the advantage of the eskimo not merely in your actual supplies but also in the means of recruiting and renewing them eight during the winter you will pursue the various objects of the expedition by making excursions with a due regard of course to safety on the snow or on the ice and at the close of your second season after having accomplished the whole of your task you will return according to your own discretion either by your original course or by back's great fish river keeping constantly in view till you reach churchill or great slave lake the general spirit of your instructions nine 
in conclusion let me assure you that we look confidently to you for the solution of what may be deemed the final problem in the geography of the northern hemisphere the eyes of all who take an interest in the subject are fixed on the hudson's bay company from us the world expects the final settlement of the question that has occupied the attention of our country for two hundred years and your safe and triumphant return which may god in his mercy grant will i trust speedily compensate the hudson's bay company for its repeated sacrifices and its protracted anxieties i remain sir etc signed g simpson john ray esq churchill hudson's bay the boats were loaded during the night and at six a m were sent down to the old stone fort at the mouth of the river where they were to wait for me a few hours besides an abundant supply of ammunition guns nets twines etc for our own use and various articles for presents and to barter with the eskimo we had on board twenty bags pemmican about ninety pounds each two bags grease about ninety pounds each twenty-five bags flour each one hundred weight four gallons of alcohol for fuel with a good stock of tea sugar and chocolate but only four gallons of brandy and two gallons of port wine as i was well aware of the bad effects of spirits in a cold climate considering that we were to be absent fifteen or perhaps twenty-seven months our quantity of provisions amounting in all to little more than four months consumption at full allowance was not very great End of chapter one